0: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
2: Anybody that talks about paradoxes in the context of time travel doesn't know anything seriously about time travel. That's just the way it is, all right? So, it's a difference in describing time travel accurately or time travel the way you would if you were like a science fiction writer.
1: If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive, commercial-free episodes per month. Plus, access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Get access to premium episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today?
0: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres, Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett.
1: In the past, I've uh, interviewed a uh, very interesting uh, gentleman out of the University of Connecticut, a uh, physics professor by the name of um, uh, Ronald Mallet who has been working on a theoretical time machine for many years. And there's some stumbling blocks. He needs funding, and uh, there may or may not be some problems with his theory. Uh, But lo and behold, there is someone else out there who is uh, contending for the crown uh, of the the first time machine. And we're going to speak to him right now. Marshall Barnes is a research and design engineer and a member of the Philosophy of Time Society. He's a conceptual theorist with a specialty in theoretical physics and cognition related to creativity and technologically induced modes of perception. That's quite a mouthful. We'll find out what that means. He's a member of the Philosophy of Time Society, as I say, National STEM Foundation and the Nine Sigma Open Invitation Organization. On June 14th of this year, he was named Edutopia Utopia edutopia.org featured member of the week and was accepted as a member of the 1,000 Scientists in 1,000 Days program, Scientific American Magazine that same month. He's currently promoting science, technology, engineering, arts, and math agenda but he's here to tell us about his race to build the very first working time machine. Marshall Barnes, how are you?
2: I'm doing well, how are you?
1: I'm well, thank you. All right. so let's first of all uh, let's talk, settle this for me, because I've always been confused. I've I've heard uh, physicists who say that Einstein's theory of relativity does not allow uh, for time travel, uh, and I've heard those who say, well, yes, it does. Now, your theory, your theoretical time machine is actually based on on Einstein's theory of relativity, is it not?
2: No. It's uh, not? Based on his unfinished unified field theory. Ah,
1: on his his unified field theory. Okay. Right.
2: It's his his unfinished one. He never actually uh, solved it, Uh, and so we have to consider it, you know, unfinished. But it's his unified field theory of electromagnetism and gravity, or what you might call distant parallelism or teleparallelism. But it's not general relativity. Most physicists, when it comes to time travel actually have a very pedestrian and shallow knowledge of the subject, which is why people like Ed Farhi of MIT, which is where that one quote came from about why we well, would take, you know, the, half the energy of the universe and then probably destroy it, you know, that kind of thing. They're they're running equations out of general relativity. And general relativity allows for some very unique and interesting things, except that they're very difficult to accomplish. And by the way, for your audience you may not be aware of this, Uh, General relativity was first put together back in 1915. So you're talking about physicists who are still talking about a theory that's almost 100 years old, okay? Right, right. So, I mean, it's kind of like, hello, can you come up with something else in the meantime, you know? One would Uh, think. Uh, Marshall, let let me... um,
1: Ask you also be, uh, to to uh, to go gentle with us, uh, fair listeners, because uh, you know we're, m- most of us are. Well, uh, if they're anything like me, they basically uh, barely got through. I think uh, grade ten physics. Um, so let's let's try and keep it. And, and this is actually something that you're very good well, at. I've I, seen I, you on I'll YouTube, and you're a master you have, at this. You are. A, so I'm just asking a question. Yeah, you're a, But you're a. I've seen you on, on YouTube. You're a master at making complex um, uh, complex ideas. Very uh, simple and crystal clear, which is one of the reasons we have you on the program. Yay. So your theoretical time machine, how does it work? How would it work?
2: Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, unlike Dr. Mallet, who I happen to know uh, personally, um, it is not like just a design, and I'm saying like, well, theoretically, if we get this built, maybe it'll be a time machine. It is an actual machine that is approaching the first stage requirement to be a time machine. Okay? Uh, what has happened is It utilizes a specially synthesized electromagnetic signal, or actually an electronic signal that then, when it hits metal, becomes an electromagnetic field. And that field has certain special properties. The main one is that it grabs space as it moves through space and contracts it. And thus, it causes acceleration. Uh, Essentially, it is like the first functioning prototype for warp drive. Now, we've done a number of uh, experiments with this thing in a linear fashion, whether we put them on vehicles going down the road or we did gravity drops, and uh, and it always caused acceleration. But the idea came up with uh, was basically, well, what happens if we have it going around and around, in other words, rotating, so it's moving, but it's moving like in a fixed position? That's when you have some very interesting ideas come up. And essentially, like, for example, Samir Mathura from Ohio uh, State University, who's a physicist near a general relativity, said, well, if you do that, and it acts the way you think it might act, you might have to start thinking about, you know, co- coaching horizons developing and things of this nature. What is that Which mean? are normally attributed to, like, black holes. You know, you have a region where, you know, on the other side of it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's an area where you can't say, well, this is where all this came from with Tunga on the other side. Uh, it, it kind of breaks causality down. Um, so I don't know what that means, though, Mark. I mean, are you suggesting... Uh, in other words, uh, cause and effect. Okay.
1: Stops happening the way you would think, you would believe, okay? Are you saying that you could create a black hole with this thing?
2: No, 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 no. Um, that's what Samir Mathur was saying, that we should start thinking about if an extreme model, uh, an extreme version of this idea before we even try to do it, okay. uh, was going to take place. And, and, and at that stage, it was purely theoretical. It was just like, what, what should we expect? And so um, I went out to Pasadena, we are in the Mars Society conference back in uh, just this past August. And I was out there with some, with some pretty brainy people. And we were all sitting around at the banquet table one night, and I told them about this idea I had about applying this signal to a metal fan so that that signal would then become an electromagnetic field, spinning with that fan, and then make that fan contract space, and it would start to get these possible interesting effects.
1: So the signal would oscillate uh, in, with, in the same motion as the fan.
2: Right. In other words, the signal would become an electromagnetic field enveloping the fan blades. Right. Because the fan blades are spinning around and around, they would be contracting space as they move through space. So what would happen then is that space would not have uh, the opportunity to expand back because here comes another blade. Right. And before that uh, gets to to be, you know, finished reacting to that, here goes another blade, another blade.
1: Tell me, describe to me what this thing looks like.
2: Oh, right now, it's... It's a simple uh, metal fan. It's not very big, but it has a cable attached to it. It's not attached to the motor. It's attached to actually uh, uh, part of the housing that uh, then basically what happens is when we send the signal to this particular uh, portion of the fan, it's then conducted to the axle, and then it goes to the fan blades And we've tested it to make sure, you know, in fact, we – I did a conductivity test before I even tried to do anything else with it. And uh, essentially what that was is you hook it up to a uh, stereo, and then you uh, take a speaker with a speaker wire coming off the back of it, mm-hmm. and then you touch it to the uh, to the different parts of the fan while the stereo is running. And if you hear music, and you hear music with high fidelity, then you've got a really good you know conductive connection there. And that's how we tested it out before... Uh, I start doing, you know, any real experiments with it. So it's basically what the setup allows you to do. The, um, what, the what effects we're getting already are number one, and this is the most important one: we're getting an acceleration of the fan. Uh, what happens is if you turn the fan on and you use a strobe light to try to uh, to make it look like it's slowed down while, by setting this uh, rate on the strobe light.
1: Right, you're putting a, You're putting a load. On the um on the current, so once you add a load, then the because of the laws of conservation of energy, the the blades should, according to the present laws of physics, should slow down. Right.
2: No 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 no. No? No. no? no. Okay. The slow down part has to do with like um the same principles of a timing light. When a mechanic works on a car. Okay. You've got the strobe light flash and you're trying to think you're trying to and I'm not a mechanic, but I know that there's something with with like a timing belt or whatever, they're trying to get something to sync up so they know that everything's running right. Okay. All right, so what we're doing with, this, with the strobe light is we're flashing the strobe light at the fan.
1: Oh, I see. Then we okay. And
2: adjust the rate so it looks like the fan's not moving. The fan's still moving. If you put your finger in, it's not going to be good. But if the fan's still moving, but this looks like it's not moving because of, the, because of the flicker rate of the strobe light. Right, right. Okay? So it has nothing to do with the load. Okay, like I understand. That. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It has nothing to do with it. Okay. Because we're not we're not doing anything to the motor of this fan. Got it. Okay. So okay. what happens then is when you get it look like it's not moving, and then you turn on the field, and all of a sudden it breaks out of that frozen position. That means, guess what? The blades it's are faster. faster,
1: right? Okay,
2: exactly. So, uh, so that was the one thing we did. The other thing we did was uh, we, sh- we, sh- we were shining a light at it, and uh, in a dark room, and we noticed when a field's activated that it seems like some of the light starts to disappear, and we don't know why. Okay, now uh, before I can you know make a guessment about that. I have to do a test to see whether or not if it has anything to do with the fact that the fan blades are moving faster, so it might reflect, it might affect the reflectivity uh, that's being, you know, that's going on with the light hitting the fan blades. But we can definitely see that there is a decrease in the light that's reflecting off of the blades.
1: So, so Marshall, if you were to place something inside this field that's been created by the oscillating fan blades in conjunction with this uh, this, uh, this signal. What do you suspect would happen to that object?
2: well, okay, right now, not a whole lot uh aside from the fact that we've got a high velocity fan going and it's blowing all kinds of air okay so but the uh the thing about it is that uh eventually what we want to do is raise the power because we're only we're working with maybe fifty watts at the most, okay now we can get our hands on an amplifier it's an expensive one, but we could you know it's available. We can get our hands on an amplifier that's 14,000 watts per channel. Now, along with the fact that we have, oh yeah, the other thing that's interesting is that uh, when you look at this fan when the field's turned on, you don't really see anything that radical with your naked eye. But if you turn up the monitor, a video monitor, after you have shot footage of it, you get a co- uh, you get a ring of color. It's like green, and that's just normal. That just it just comes off that comes off that way. But then when the field's activated all of a sudden you see this stream of yellow coming into it. And we're like, what is that? (laughs) You know, we're still trying to figure out what that is. But that's something else that's indicating there's something really different going on here. But again, we're only dealing with 50 watts output. So if you can imagine increasing the power by like 300 times, I mean, you you can just kind of think, well, you know, we might be at that point, maybe even before that point, be approaching what you might call science fiction level effects.
1: Okay, but w- explain to me why you believe that you are actually creating a time machine and not just blowing air around at incredibly high rates.
2: Well, because what we're seeing, ha- the effects we're seeing have nothing to do with the air. Okay. That's why. Um, I mean, air. I mean, for example, the acceleration of the fan has nothing to do with blowing air. It's blowing air uh, anyway. Right. So, uh, And also, the thing about it is if we, just like Ron Mallet with his uh, rotating ring laser, he thinks that if by having this laser go around, it's going to start to twist space and time, and then it'll start to get closed time-like curves, and it'll have a time machine. Right. Well, we know that space is being affected by this field. That's what's causing the acceleration of the fan. Okay. So if we crank it up with enough power, then we will start to twist space and time, and then we will eventually get closed time-like curves. I mean, it's just a matter of you know doing the math on it. The key is that this field does something that is akin to what Einstein was talking about with his uh, unified field theory of electromagnetism and gravity, that we have an electromagnetic field that is creating a gravitic effect. In other words, it's exhibiting the kind of properties you expect if electromagnetism and gravity were coupled together in some fashion. And there's other physicists who've been looking at this idea, but the big difference is that they're trying to make the electromagnetic field take on these properties after the field has been created. Whereas my approach was synthesizing something from the, from the very beginning so that when the field, you know, is, is created, it's already doing what you want it to do.
1: When you say you've synthesized this field, what is what are the properties of this, this uh, electrical signal that you're sending to the fan?
2: Okay, what's going on is that it's a special, like I said, a specially synthesized signal. And, and it's, it's created in a way that, you know, because my background's in music, okay, and video and things like that. And so... You know, I remember when synthesizers were all these buttons and patch cords and things like that. So I understand synthesis. Most physicists don't, okay? So the, the situation is such that, and this is not a proprietary area for obvious reasons, but uh, the basic idea was that I was interested in what interesting things uh, special electromagnetic fields could do. One well, of my first experiments was uh, I created a rotating electromagnetic field that was basically had a TV set, not so much in the middle of it. but kind of in, in the middle of the loop, not in the center, but like part of the part of the loop that was going on. And basically, what it, it succeeded in doing, it was completely breaking down all the filtering mechanisms. So that I was able to basically capture cell phone calls and all kinds of communications that shouldn't have been coming through the TV set. And at the same time, this is happening on the screen, you see nothing but white. And it's, it's white that's slowly undulating, like somebody, like you're looking down the surface of a glass of milk and somebody just kind of gently t- knocks it a little bit, just to make it ripple. Right. And that's what was on the screen. Hmm. And then at one point, uh, at another time I was doing one of these experiments, um, one of the things I was interested in was uh, signals traveling through space. As you well know, being in radio, uh, all these radio signals and TV signals over the years are just flying out in outer space. So I was I was interested in finding out whether or not it might be possible to capture one of these things from the past. And one day, well, behold, I got this old movie on the TV while I was running one of these experiments. I got all excited and everything at first, but then it went to commercial, and it was like, you know, it was a modern-day commercial. Ah,
1: okay. So what I had an...
2: done was I had picked up a, a, a TV station from a long distance away that I really had, it shouldn't have been able to pick up at all. So that was, uh, it wasn't what I was really looking for, but it was very interesting nonetheless.
1: Now this, this machine that you're working on, this uh, time machine that you're working on, right? um, what's the, the, the the game plan here? Do you, do you, do you think that within your lifetime you could send information forwards in time or an actual person forwards in time?
2: Okay, we're not going forward. This is, this is because we're we're, we're going to be creating closed time like curves. We read, this is about the past. It's not about sending anything to the future at all.
1: You're, you're, you, you sincerely believe it is possible to travel backwards in time.
2: Okay. Uh, several things. One, yes. Uh, two, there's more than one way of trying to do it. But I'm just saying, just basically within the context of what we're doing, uh, d- based on what Mallet was talking about, although using a completely different approach, mm-hmm. we're talking about being able to create closed timeline curves, which would then send something backward to the past. Okay, so that's that's the model. We're not trying to send anything to the future. It might be it might be theoretically possible to do that, but that's like you know further down the road, and we would have to take a slightly different approach.
1: Would you be, it, be sending information to the past or people?
2: Okay, um, the first thing we're going to be doing is we're going to be seeing like photons disappear and then electrons, uh, and then so you can so you can call that information if you want. Um, then it'd be a situation where we'll just start slowly scaling everything up. So before you try to send somebody, first of all you have to know what's on the other, what's going on, on the other end, okay? But eventually, let's say in the long view, uh yeah, there's in fact I've already had people say that they would they would volunteer to go. <laughs> but the uh but yeah, it's it's a process whereby we would slowly scale up, see what happens, see how, how well the whole operation works. And then you start sending live things back, like maybe a roach or something like that, or, you know, a hamster, and then it gets up to a lizard. Or, you know, you know the, the normal scientific way you do these kind of things, like when they were putting animals up in outer space before they put, you know, right. man. Right. It's, it's the same kind of approach.
1: Let me ask you a question that may on the surface seem silly, but I sometimes I ask those types of questions. It's fine. Uh, how do we know the past exists? Okay. Does that make
2: sense? Yeah, no, no, it's, it, yeah, it's, it certainly does make sense. Um, one way of looking at it is the block universe model, okay? And in the block universe model, everything that's ever happened and is going to happen is already all laid out, okay? So the short, the short version of this whole thing is essentially looking at it as, as everything's the path. If, if, if the block universe model has any kind of validity whatsoever, that means everything's already happened. It's just that we're in the middle of it. It's like, for example, um, if you have a DVD and it's got you know alternate versions on it and all this kind of stuff – on that DVD, everything's already happened, but when you put it in your player and you watch it, it's not already happened to you yet because you're in the middle watching the DVD. Right. But it's already all there. Okay. So that's one way of looking at the whole thing about the past. And the other thing about it is that, you know, physicists have seen equations that would suggest that you can go backwards in time, and that's where that where comes from. So, you know, but... And I want to point out one thing. One of the problems when dealing with concepts about time travel is that the original ideas about time travel came from, like, you know, science fiction stories. H.G. Wells. Exactly, right. And so, inherently, you have all kinds of ideas in there that don't make sense if you try to apply it to the real world. Like paradoxes, okay? There are no paradoxes in any real time travel scenarios because it's real easy to see why that wouldn't happen. Uh, The Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics is one of them.
1: Okay, let me just explain, uh, like, a paradox, a typical paradox is the problem with... traveling to the, the past is let's say i travel back to 19 uh, 1951 and i prevent my parents uh, inadvertently from from getting married and thus having children and thus i wouldn't exist mm-hmm. so that's a paradox or i accidentally run over my great great grandfather with an ox cart in you know 1805 so that my grandparents would, my grandfather wouldn't be born, my father wouldn't be born, and so on. These are these are called paradoxes. Right. You're saying that's not a problem with traveling backwards in time. Right. Exactly. How, and you explain know why? why. Because
2: when you go back in time, now well, first let me start out from a scientific foundation. The like Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics says that you only get one outcome per measurement. Okay. So to apply that to the real world. You know, the one measurement that's already happened is, like, all this stuff with your, you know, ancestors, and you are here, okay? So that's, that's a given. If you go back in time, and this is where it becomes very important, the mere act of traveling back to the past is a different outcome because it didn't happen the first time around. So that automatically says, okay, something's different here, all right? Then anything else that you do while you're back there, it's also obviously a different outcome. So you have to be in a parallel universe. It's not the same timeline.
1: So technically, are you traveling backwards in time, or are you simply jumping to another dimension?
2: In other words, okay, anybody that talks about paradoxes within the context of time travel doesn't know anything seriously about time travel. That's just the way it is. Okay. All right? So it's a difference in describing time travel accurately or time travel the way you would if you were like a science fiction writer. Got it. So if you go back in time... You're ending up in a parallel universe, all right? You're not going to be on the same timeline as you were because everything, they already happened, and we have records of it. For example, you can't go back in time and save the same Titanic that we know about because it's at the bottom of the ocean floor, okay? But you could save
1: a Titanic in an alternate universe.
2: Uh, Exactly. Uh, All right, hold on, Marshall.
1: I've got uh, about a billion more questions for you. I don't know if we'll get to all of them. Probably not. But the one we need to find out is, is it possible to travel back further in time than when the time machine was created? Don't answer now. We'll get to that when we come back. Marshall Barnes, the race to build the first time machine. C60 Evo delivers the miracle molecule ESS60. It's pure carbon 60. Why not love your body and share C60 Evo with those you love? ESS 60 from C60 Evo is a mega antioxidant for increased strength, endurance, flexibility, and a deeper sleep. It's great for pets too. I take a tablespoon every day and so does the mighty Aphrodite. We're both sleeping better than we have in years. And during the day, we have such tremendous energy and vitality. We're both pain-free. In a landmark, peer-reviewed animal study in Paris, France, rats fed ESS 60 lived twice their normal lifespan. Go to c60evo.com slash Richard Serrett or click on the C60 Evo link in the episode notes. Use the code EVRS at checkout and save 10%. ESS 60 from C60 Evo. Order your miracle in a bottle today.
0: Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, Here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five.
1: Welcome back. Marshall Barnes is uh, with us, and we are talking about uh, time travel. And he's building a time machine. And get this—he's not talking about uh, traveling into the future. I mean, we've already demonstrated that that is that's possible. Um, you know, nanoseconds into the future. He's talking about time travel into the past, a long thought by many physicists to be impossible. But he—but Marshall is saying, no, 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 no. They're—they're they're basing that on you know, a th- Einstein's theory that's 100 a- a years old. Uh, now, Marshall, here's, to me, the one of the crucial questions. Uh-huh. Is it possible to to travel back further in time than when the time device is turned on?
2: Okay, that's a, that's a very good question, and I want to deal with that because, first of all, what you have to understand is that when physicists say, you know, basically what you just said, if you can't travel back in the past before the time machine is turned on, they are talking about closed time-like curves, all right? And what that is, closed time-like curves is like physicist's code language for time machine. Because basically, this is is what happens in the scientific community. It's a lot like high school, okay? Uh, Everybody wants to be popular. Everybody wants to be accepted. And there's certain things that you can't do because it was in that community. It's just not deemed to be cool. At least it wasn't, okay? And time travel is one of those things. It's like, you know, as soon as you start talking about, oh, I'm thinking about doing something about time travel, all your peers are like, oh, uh, you know, you feeling okay? Uh, yeah, they know, back out of the room meditation. slowly.
1: Yeah, I know that feeling.
2: <laughs> right, exactly. That's, and that's the way they, they would treat them. Okay, now, and, and to me, because I'm an engineer, I'm not, I don't call myself a scientist. I'm a research and development engineer, by the way, not design, development. And that's, that's important because the development part of it means you take what you're researching, you figure out a way to make money with it, Okay. So I'm not bound by the same uh, confines as physicists who work at a university and have to worry about, like, you know, getting tenure or something like that or satisfying the administration above them and trying to get grants and all that kind of stuff. But basically, Kip Thorne back in 1988 said that even though a lot of physicists like science fiction subjects, they are afraid to, or at least they were at that time, to veer too close to the area of science fiction because then the peer pressure starts. And the peer pressure in the science community makes the kind of stuff that, you know, these jaded high school cheerleaders do to each other look like, you know, a happy birthday party. So the bottom line is that, uh, and then that has changed, though, over the years. It's gotten better. But uh, for a while, there, it was really, really bad. And so what that basically meant is that the same impetus to look for really cool, cutting-edge kind of things uh, in the scientific community uh, it doesn't exist the way it did back at the beginning of the twentieth century. All right. Right. So I mean, how smart is that? <laughs> I mean, it's like like I said, these physicists like Ed Farhi, they are like talking about general relativity. I mean, general relativity came out in nineteen fifteen.
1: Right. It's right. almost
2: a hundred years old. Exactly. It's like you know, what hasn't anybody been looking at anything else?
1: Apparently not. No. So, but back I mean, to exactly
2: the... they haven't. But that's the actual truth. It's okay.
1: That,
2: excuse me. There's something they don't know. So they don't know whether it's, it's possible. They just haven't looked. And so to me, it's kind of like, you know, what's that about? So basically, I was looking. In fact, a lot of my research goes back to what people are looking at in the early 20th century. And after all, that's where Einstein's unfinished unified field theory is derived from. It was like he was working on it in the early 20s uh, initially. And uh, he was trying to unify electromagnetism and gravity. And a lot of people in the scientific community, completely forgotten about that.
1: Well, that's what a lot of Tesla's work was based on, right? Was Einstein's unfinished...
2: No, 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 no we, we can't get that mixed up. Tesla okay. stuff, that Tesla thought Einstein was wrong about a lot of things. I'm not saying Einstein was wrong, I'm just saying Tesla disagreed with him. Okay. But Tesla was really big into electricity, okay? Right. And um, I'm not sure... I mean, you'll hear all kinds of, you know, fantastic things about Tesla. Uh, like, you know, he had an anti-gravity machine and all, all kinds of unfounded stuff. But the uh, the thing about it was he was really big in electricity. He wanted to do like free energy. He wanted to transmit electricity through the air and, and all right, that kind of right. deals. And unfortunately, he wasn't pragmatic enough to uh, tell J.P. Morgan, "Okay, we'll do this, and you can put a meter on it. But just because so, it's soap, it's going to be free to you. Just don't make it very expensive, because that would that would really help us out a lot." But he was too much of an idealist, and so you know, you know, you know the rest of the story. Right.
1: Okay. I don't want. To, yeah. I, I, I sorry. I I, so, I got you to, to digress here, but let's right. back to my question as to whether it's possible. i say, if you turn on the time machine today, mm-hmm. could you travel back further in time than October the fourteenth, two thousand and twelve? Could you travel back to fifteen eighty one?
2: Okay. Great. That's a good point. Um, no, if we just did follow the, the the path that we're working on right now, okay, we wouldn't. It would not happen that way. Alright, however, there is a separate stage that could be applied that is at this point strictly theoretical, but there's a basis for it that could possibly allow us to do that. Because, see, when I was talking about the closed like curve thing, like code for time machine. closed sunlight curves are something that do appear in general relativity. And so, and what they do is they take you back to a particular point in the past where that curve began in the first place. Alright? Right. And there's actually even problems. But the descriptions of these closed-time occurs, because some descriptions say that when you go into one, you come right back around and repeat the same thing over and over and over again. But if that happens, then really, like Stephen Hawking's idea of chronology protection conjecture comes into play. Okay,
1: you, uh, you're going to lose the room with uh, all right, sorry. <laughs> let me, let me. That's all right. You go
2: back before the time yeah. machines created. And so, you're uh, saying
1: that there is a possibility.
2: Yeah, there's a possibility. It's just not based on what most physicists are talking about when they talk about time machines. They're usually talking about closed time like curves, and in that case, uh, no, you couldn't. So, you know, we're talking about a different thing altogether.
1: But in your, but in your world, in your vision, it's there is a there's an, there's a the possibility.
2: There is a there, there is a path. To go down to test whether or not it might be possible. Okay. So that's yeah.
1: Now, if you're if you're sent to the past, can you get back? I mean, how I mean, how, how sure. are you able to? I'll, I'll
2: answer the question. Yeah. yeah. If, if for example, if you, let's say you open up some kind of a wormhole to the past. Okay. If the wormhole stays open, yeah, you can get back. Now, let's say the wormhole collapses, but because of the technology we're using, and you're not didn't you weren't silly enough to go back to some point in the past where, you know, you didn't have you know comparable technology. All right, then you know if that, that happened, then you could build the machine again and come back if you knew how to do it. Okay, for example, if I if I went back and something happened and the machine uh, got destroyed on this end, and I was as long as I was like you know in the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, I could build it again and come back. So you know that in that case it would work. If you have a vehicle and uh, and you somehow are able to go back to back in time. Yeah, you can get back because you have the vehicle. The only problem with, with, with uh, coming back is whether or not you have the means to do so, build another machine where you are in order to do so. People wanting to go back to ancient Egypt and ancient Rome and all this other kind of silliness. I mean, that would be very difficult. Plus the fact, no one spoke English back then. So I don't know why people want to do that kind of stuff. You know, I'd rather go back to like some other part in the, you know, in the latter part of the 20th century where I know where everything's going to happen and I know where to find the best restaurants and all that kind of stuff and have a lot of fun.
1: <laughs> I like you know, This is uh, this is refreshing actually to hear uh, someone speak about you know time travel in these terms. Uh, yeah, let's go back to when you know uh, when a Big Mac was fifty cents for crying yeah. out loud. Never mind you know trying to, you know to see the Gettysburg Address. <laughs> <laughs> no,
2: just go to Woodstock. Let's go to you know. Right on. The yes. Kind of cool stuff. Uh, you know.
1: Uh, um, first of all. Uh, what, what are the obstacles for you to complete this? Is it funding? Is it what, what's 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 the main obstacle you're well, facing? Well, we have
2: right now? again, like I said, I am a research and development engineer, so this means I have a, a business uh, side to all this. So uh, we have a business plan. We're in the process of working it, and so funding's not the same problem as it was as it is with Dr. Mallet, uh, who needs like three hundred thousand dollars. We'll the last time I talked with him, in order to even get to the first stage, so he can try to see if his idea even works. I mean, with three, I, I couldn't spend $300,000 on this project, at least to get to the point where I can say, hey, this thing works. All right, You don't need that kind of money. Uh, one of the reasons why is because we already had the STTS technology, which enables us to start to do interesting things to begin with. So now it's just a matter of scaling the thing up. I mean, the amplifier that I referenced was, was 14,000 watts. That's like a $6,000 amplifier, okay? So that's kind of expensive. but. I mean, I don't need anywhere near the money that mallet needs. I what mean, do you close. need, Marshall? What do you need? What do you? Basically, need? all we need is time to, to, to conduct the research and, and, uh, and start, you know, scaling things up. Right. So, in other words, I think we're going to have a conclusion whether it's possible or not. We're going to know in less than 30 months.
1: You in know? Less probably than 30
2: a lot, months. lot, lot less than 30 months.
1: And how? And, and assuming that goes well, how soon uh, before um, you could send someone backwards in time?
2: Well, okay. Let's say that everything goes as we think it should go. Realistically, next year we should know whether or not we can. You know, it will really work. And then, then that's just in terms of getting close on that curve's going and maybe even opening up some kind of a hole in space and time. Then comes like all the other interim stages you have to go through to figure out. Okay, what are you going to do now? What what are the limitations? There's a lot of research that goes into that. So. I, you know, it'd be like maybe another year or two, or something like that, because we don't know. We're dealing with un, a lot of unknown things here. I don't know. For example, radiation problems. We already know that the, the fan, the way it is right now, is creating ozone. But there's no high voltage involved. So we think there might be some kind of Z effect that, that this warping space, the thing that's that this being generated, is creating. So we have, to, we have to have all kinds of issues we have to deal with along the way. It's not like it's a matter of like, oh, let's get that amplifier and hook it up and crank it up all the way to 11, you know? This is, you know, after all, you know, very, uh, um, you know, it's a scientific process, and we have to be careful because there are certain risks. Right,
1: you know, you don't want to ramp it up to eleven, as you say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, let's send Christopher Guest back in time. Let's, <laughs> all right, for those fans of uh, <laughs> Spinal Tap. Uh, yeah. uh, now, listen, uh, uh, where can people uh, find out more about what you're doing? Can they see YouTube video? Can they see where can they We're learn gonna, more so the about best
2: what you're thing doing? What you do is go to this website that's been created. It's called. The Great Time Machine Race. Dot Weebly. That's w e e b l y dot com. The Great Time Machine Race. Weebly dot com. All the information about what's starting to happen is going to be on there, both for Mallet as well as myself and my project, which, which is called the the Fairchild Fan. Now, um, I'm guessing all this is on a... there. You'll see pictures. We're going to eventually start putting video on there. There's, there's all kinds of stuff that's going to be there. And again,
1: you're saying that it's it's it's, it's possible that if everything goes right over the next 30 months. You could start sending people back in time. Within- I, I
2: caution with the people thing only because there's certain things we don't know about. But we could certainly—I mean, we're going to be sending like you know photons and things like that back, and I thoroughly I f- expect that information. Maybe even small animals—I don't know. But I'm just saying that. That is not in the realm of impossibility. Here's a, okay. Here's uh, yeah. my
1: parting question. Sure. And if, if I mean, uh, no offense, but it seems like if, if you were able to, f- to discover this, someone else must have at some point. And if time travel is possible, why aren't we seeing? Why aren't there time travelers amongst us?
2: All right, great. First of all, I, I love that. Cause that's that Stephen Hawking thing, and I'm always a uh, foil with Stephen Hawking. Uh, basically, what happens is this: number one. Uh if time travel exists, and if we, in fact, the original thing was time travel tourists. We're all the time travel tourists. Anyone smart enough to do time travel and, then tour, and turn it into a, a touring business, you know, is smart enough to know if you go back in the past, you don't want people to know you're from the future because it's going to cause all kinds of problems. The other thing about it is this, and this comes down to physics, the because of parallel universes, there's a near infinite number of pasts out there. So the probability that someone from the future is going to come to our particular past is rather nil, particularly if they're running a time travel business.
1: All right. Okay. got to leave it at that point. Okay. I, th- I think that's a great answer. And Marshall, what a pleasure meeting you. Thank you. Uh, you've left us all gobsmacked, as they say, across the pond in the UK. I hope you'll come back on and talk more. Not a problem. Marshall Barnes.
0: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind.